Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Joining me today for another up-to-date episode is Adam Bristol. Welcome back, Adam. Thanks, Indre. It's so great to be here again as your I guess, semi-regular sidekick. (laughs) All right. So what caught your eye this week in the news? Well, there are two papers that caught my eye because in both cases, you'll see they're wildly different, but in both cases, they use modern technology to illuminate history. Hmm. And I found both of them to be fantastic examples of where you can combine in an interdisciplinary fashion, cutting edge techniques, genetics, 3D printing, but then the subject matter is looking back into the past, thousands of years into the past. And in some cases, you can use some of the historical record and some of the uh, literature of the time to then also be added to the data set to really give you a fuller understanding of what was happening. And so I can't wait to tell you about these two papers. They're really fascinating. All right. Well, let's start with the first one. Okay. The first one you may have heard it because I, I, as I, after I read it, not surprisingly, it was picked up by other major uh, media outlets. But if you but actually after you read it, after I read it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's a kind of one. You know, when I was uh, in graduate school, we used to talk about um, that certain pa- certain papers had the hey Marge quality, and you think, what the heck is a hey Marge quality? It's where there's someone sitting in their lazy boy at home, and they read about it, and they turn around and say, hey Marge, did you hear that they you know, so th- nice. both of these papers have the hay marge quality. So this one was from primarily a group uh, in the Middle East, led by a, a woman who seems like a fantastic scientist and really uh, explorer named Sarah Salin uh, in Jerusalem. And what they did was they uh, are following up on a 2008 uh, report in which they were able to successfully germinate 2,000-year-old date palm seeds. Whoa. Now, they did this in 2008. They were able to go to an archaeological site near the Dead Sea, and they were able to, with great care, take what were turned out to be 2,000-year-old seeds, and they germinated and created a real 
plant, living plant. Wow. But of course, date palms, as I came to learn, have a, a bit of a quirk. They're not hermaphroditic, but rather they're males and female. And so they, the, and the, the original 2008 specimen, which they called Methuselah, was a male. Mm. And so to get fruit and to get, you know, I guess, you know, good, uh, a good match, they needed to go, and they reported this week now, here almost 12 years later, a detailed analysis on six additional specimens, which they were able to germinate and grow to full plants, two of which are female genotypes. Oh, so wow. when those flower, they can then cross-pollinate and hopefully get what are um, basically 2,000-year-old variety. Now talk about, you know, heirloom. These are going to be 2,000-year-old variety uh, dates. Wow. So it's like you could eat dates that presumably would taste the same to us uh, that the Romans ate. Exactly right. And if you read the paper, what's amazing is, yes, if you just look at the morphology of these seeds, they're quite different looking than today's modern seeds that have been cultivated mm. you know, extensively. They are, on average, longer and wider. So clearly just the morphology, their shape and size has changed over time. They also did a, a genetic analysis of them, and you got to see that these females tend to come from these eastern regions. The, the, the male genotypes tend to come from a more western side of this mm. kind of Mesopotamian, or I don't know my geography well, but around the Dead Sea. And um, this actually is corroborated by a lot of historical records from ancient times and, and Roman times about kind of the date trade. And so they're really, I think this that's a fantastic, like I said, a corroboration of the historical literature, if you will, that is uh, the records from using now what are advanced genetic techniques. And then the last thing I'll say, which is really neat, is, you know, they're really wondering how is it that these date seeds can be remain viable for two millennia? Yeah. And they think that it is, it's hot it's dry, and importantly, in the Dead Sea, which is on average below sea level, there's a thicker atmosphere, apparently, I guess, mm. as you get sort of below sea level, which could protect it from radiation and just other sorts of, mm. I guess, weathering processes um, that they, these remain viable now. Wow. And they gave them all names. So you might be asking, so Methuselah was the 2008... The first one they got was Adam, which I was, which I was fully in support of. <laughs> but there's other ones like Judith and there's uh, Hannah, and they kind of named each one of these individual seeds. And if you read the paper, uh, in, which is when Science Advances uh, last week, you actually see photos uh, not just of the, the the seeds, but then of the trees that sprouted from them, which is actually yeah. pretty cool. Oh, and the last yeah. thing too, you might ask, how do they actually know they're two thousand years old? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, how come? Why aren't they just like you know because, remnants of dates that somebody... right? So they did carbon dating oh. on shell fragments that were then I would say liberated by the sprouting seeds, uh, sprouting roots from the seeds, oh. and so you can take these little fragments do carbon dating. Now, certainly, you're planting them in soil, and the soil which is going to be taken up in your sample was going to have carbon in it too. Mm. But they had a way of, and this is a bit beyond my pay grade, they had a way of distinguishing modern carbon, the proportion of modern carbon, netting that out, and then you can recalculate the estimated um, mm. age of the seeds. And so all of them were between about 1,800 and 2,000 years old. Wow. That sounds cool. I'll buy some 2,000-year-old Dates. Well, I mean, it, so they're excited <laughs> about the possible, and so I read. I read this. No, you're exactly right. I mean, it it has that hay marge, like a two thousand yeah. year old variety of, of varietal of of dates. But 
I take it in my mind kind of one step further, which is here's a new source of genetic diversity. Mm. If you could imagine, is there something about these ancient seeds and we start to get their genotypes now and we can, cor- we can, we can connect them to a now an observed phenotype because mm-hmm. we've actually been able to sprout them. Are there genes in there? Are there aspects of those that we could either just simple crossbreed or can we use them in any more genetic engineering way and splice them into some existing mm-hmm. varieties that may be threatened for one reason or another? So I see this kind of ancient DNA now almost being back on the table yeah. and, and, and brought back. And so I was excited about that. Poss- that that's just me thinking, but it, it, I, that seems completely possible to me. So what was the second paper that was your hey, Marge? Well, the second one, again, had this element of using modern techniques to uh, revisit the past. And so there was a group in England primarily who did a detailed uh, CAT scan of a Egyptian mummy. Mm. And from this Egyptian mummy, about 3,000 year old, his name was Nesyamun, Nesyamun, um, they made a detailed model, 3D model of his vocal track. So that's wow. going to be the dimensions of the unique kind of shape of the vocal track, which we know is important. And this is maybe you might find yeah. interesting, of course, for the unique signature of someone's voice. And so they 3D printed that model of his airway. They connected it to a electronic voice box, essentially, and were able to recreate. And there's some Im- there's some audio files linked to the paper of what Nesyaman may have sounded like, almost bringing his voice back now, you know, from from the dead. All right, well, let's listen. I mean, it's pretty simplistic, right? You're just getting what essentially like some vowel sounds. But the idea, again, it's just that you can make this, you make this leap from these you know, from the imaging data to a 3D model. Again, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's looking backwards and trying to almost breathe new life or a new insight into some uh, old topics. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, You can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Yeah, no, so I wonder if like, you know, I I wonder though, so as a singer, it seems to me that the voice box obviously is really important, but so are the resonant cavities in my face and head, you know, and, and when I use my voice, I, especially when I'm singing, I tend to think about, 
you know, how, how, how I'm resonating in those cavities. And, and I use that. I wonder if they also have the ability to um, kind of attach this to the skull and see if they could get a more, you know, a, a richer, more kind of complete signal. I would think that that's a, a, entirely possible because, yeah. you know, this mummified body presumably has a fairly intact cranium. Wow. And you'd be able to, again, model that additional, you know, piece, which would be kind of the resonant architecture of, of the face and nasal passages. But I just wonder if this one, just the piece alone of just the vocal track plus the, the voice box is almost the very building block upon which the resonance and all the sort of tonality you can create with a face, you know, that's it's the basis of that. Yeah. And, you know, there are some people like Jared Diamond, for example, who really think that the larynx, the voice box is what ultimately separated humans from our ancestors because it allowed us to communicate in ways that others couldn't. And so this question of, well, 3000 years ago, did we have the same capacity that we do do today? You know, given that it, I would imagine the fundamentally the larynx isn't that different, given that that's just a blip in our evolutionary history. But it'd be interesting to see if there were some significant differences that might even allow us to understand something more deeply about Egyptian culture at that time. I just think it's interesting that, you know, these fields, you know, like I remember when when LIDAR was using, was being used from, you know, aircraft and they were doing archaeology by looking at these uh, like broad swaths of land with LIDAR and by seeing, you know, mounds and things, it was all of a sudden allowing them to look at the landscape from an archaeological point of view and they discovered a whole bunch of new ruins. Mm. So the idea is that all these you know, these uh, archaeology and history and social sciences are now, you know, in, in many ways have some new tools and new, new tools in the toolkit uh, for a richer, um, you know, examination, which is, I think it's just fascinating. Yeah. So speaking of new tools, uh, as you know, but our listeners might not, I just spent the weekend at a unconference called uh, Social Sci-Fu, uh, which is this kind of gathering of people in the social sciences and various other disciplines and just random people, <laughs> uh, which is probably why I was there because my work is not strictly social science. Uh, but it was really interesting to sort of hear what other people were talking about in terms of cutting edge stuff. And the exciting thing for me is that a lot of them agreed to come on the podcast. So the next couple of months are going to be filled with uh, interviews with people that I met who had really interesting stories to tell, like um, David Dunning, for example, who had a really interesting story to tell about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, and Kevin Kelly talking about you know his work in China. And anyway, it was a lot of fun. And I can't wait to share those interviews with you. Uh, but I have also a study that came across my feed this week that I thought you'd be really interested in, Adam. So for our um, listeners who don't know, Adam and I both did work for our PhDs involving neuroplasticity and forgetting. Well, not forgetting so much, me, you, but me. <laughs> I studied some aspects of forgetting. and and But we both studied learning and memory and, and the neural basis of it. And so forgetting is often something that people think of as a bad thing about memory. But forgetting is really important. It's an important feature of memory that allows us to extract the gist and not get bogged down with the details. And in fact, failure to forget can be a significant problem uh, later on in life, or even when you're studying or when you're trying to learn something, uh, because, you know, it, 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 it makes it difficult to sort of keep the important things in mind. So this study that was published in Science um, talks about or found, I should say, a new role for microglia. These are support cells in the brain, so they're not neurons uh, in forgetting. Hmm. 
Yeah, so microglia are generally thought of as as part of the brain's immune system. So they're sort of they're sort of the a type of cell that helps get rid of toxic materials inside inside the brain, kind of cleans up, uh, cleans house, yeah. <laughs> if you were, yeah. and and serves a function perhaps in even uh, repairing repairing synapses and and getting rid of ones that really aren't functioning well. But it turns out that in this study, what they did is they used the classic um, contextual fear conditioning. So this is where you take a rodent, in this case, it was mice, and you put them into a particular context, say, like a cage with some distinctive features. Um, maybe there's like a colored poster on one side or something like that. And they shock the mice in that context. And so the mice learn to fear that context. But if over time, the mice keep going into that context, and they don't get shocked, eventually that fear gets extinguished, it gets essentially forgotten. Well, they found that when they gave the, the uh, cells drugs that that specifically got rid of microglial cells, that those mice did not show that extinction, that that forgetting of and they showed contextual fear condition conditioning responses, even many, many days later. That is fascinating. I mean, a lot of learning theorists, and there's data to suggest that that form of extinction is not forgetting, but is a, it is a new form of learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but but still, point. the phenomenology here of a microglial targeted intervention have an impact on the behavioral expression of learning yeah. is very interesting to me. And and microglia have a very close association with astrocytes. Mm-hmm. Which also then we know astrocytes, it's often not in the textbooks, but they're right there at the synapse. Mm-hmm. The astrocytes have played important support. They do a variety of things like microglia do, do, but they're also right there, you know, with their projections then right kind of wrapping around that that pre and postsynaptic cell connection called the synapse. And, and they have a play a very important signaling role. So. so wait, but the story gets even more interesting. Please. Scientists even took the cells that they felt were the ones that stored the memory, and they put a they marked them with a dye. Um, and then they gave the mice a drug that kept those marked cells from firing action potential. So they could not fire off signals. So now mm. these cells okay. were silent, Uh, essentially. And it turns out they were even more susceptible to the microglial activity. So when we think about it, too, this makes a lot of sense, because important things, important memories, we often replay multiple times. So this might be a mechanism by which the replay ensures that these synapses don't get destroyed by the microglia. But if there isn't replay, then and those 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 essentially unused synapses stick around for a while, then eventually they might be vulnerable to this microglial cleaning up. Hmm. So anyway, I thought it was, I thought you might find it cool given uh, both of our academic histories. Yeah, I'm still I'm still I'm still processing it because uh, there's no question that the brain immune interaction uh, um, is coming to the forefront, a form of neuroimmunology, and in, in this kind of bi-directional interaction between the two systems, uh, we're learning a lot about uh, how that how that interplay happens. And I'd love to read this paper. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, it doesn't explain all of memory because we can have we can have very durable memories even without replaying them. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure that this is, sure. uh, you know, specific to this particular form of memory. But anyway, it was interesting nonetheless, because so often we hear about, you know, the work of the neurons and that glial cells are just the entourage. They're not really involved in cognition. They're not really involved in sort of the, the you know, thinking aspects of the brain. And here's yet another example that that's just plain wrong, uh, that in fact, these kinds of support cells 
might play an active role in maintaining our brains. So that's it for another episode of Up to Date. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Joining me today is our correspondent, Adam Bristol. See you next week. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprites ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last